1: Hello and welcome to the How-To Academy podcast, with me, that's Christodoulou. Junkie, DJ, punk, pill-popper, petty criminal, binge-drinker, screenwriter and TV repairman, Irvine Welsh has lived more lives than the average literary novelist, and survived to tell the tale. One of the most provocative and iconoclastic authors the British Isles have ever produced, Welsh is of course best known for Trainspotting and its sequels alongside an array of equally brilliant fiction. His latest is the crime thriller The Long Knives. He joined Esme Bright for a freewheeling journey into his febrile imagination. Enjoy.
0: So I want to know, because you're currently filming the new television show of your new book, as well as promoting the book at the same time, so you're very much in the world of D.I. Ray Lennox, but was the sequel to Crime planned initially from the beginning?
2: No, not at all, and yeah, you know, I don't really think it is a crime novel as such. I so think mm. it's more of a, an existential thriller. I'm not really interested in kind of crime fiction, and you know, in this traditional sense of it. But Dougray came to me after Dougray Scott, who's the lead actor in it, um, came to me after he read crime and he goes, "I've got to play this character. I just want to play Ray Lennon, So I need to play him." I'm like yeah, so we tried to get uh, a film done of it, and we'd had a you know, we'd done. We'd done filth. John Baird had done filth, and mm-hmm. John was quite interested in carrying on with Jamie Bell as um, as Lennox in, the, in in crime, basically. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'd met Dougray by this time, and I thought, well, you know, it was like, um, I just kind of felt that he had such passion for it. You know, he just—it's like it's, it's like when we when you saw James McAvoy kind of in filth, and you saw like you know, Robert Carlyle playing Begbie and all that, and he's reprising Begbie. They're kind of passion projects, and an actor gets really right into them, and you just have to let them go with them, like you know. And so, degree and I would try to get made into a film first, and it took, and then we realized that there was so much to Lennox, it would be and so much to the book, it would be better as a sort of um, a, a kind of long form TV drama. And since then, you had the rise of that kind of genre, you know, you've had all the, the, the HBO stuff, and um, you've had this, you know, it's quite it's unacceptable and it's kind of seen as a new, where the new novel is in the long form TV show now. So we went to that approach and um, it took us a while to find the right producer. Uh, we had a lot of setbacks on the way, but you just keep on. And it took us, you know, it took us a good 10 years really to get to where we've got to with it. And, but we, we stuck it out um, and it's been great. You know, we've, we've got some um, Buccaneer Media have been our partners and, um, We've kind of moved from BritBox to ITVX, but it's the same ITV led thing with Polly Hill and they've been fantastic, you know, they've been into that place now that they want to, you know, the ITV is kind of wants to like all other kind of platforms, it wants to move from having an older kind of terrestrial TV audience into a sort of into the whole the um the more uncertain but kind of rewarding world of of streaming and all that and the you know the global mm-hmm. film. World of, so that's what we've been doing, basically. We've been trying to do a, a story that's, um, you know, that kind of gets a police procedural element to kind of hook the, the more traditional kind of sort of mm-hmm. audience in, but then move it to where we want it to be, which is like the existential thriller, so kind of kind of character-based stuff, not to plot more about the, the character and um, how they relate to the world and how they see the world. So moving it to, from, like, basically, you know, I see... What I see crime as being is kind of starting off in the bill and ending up in True Detective. A book is different. A book, you can just go nuts. You can just completely indulge yourself and get right into the character's head, make it all about the character. So it's a very different animal as a book as it is a TV show.
0: Yeah. You do crack a joke about Taggart in the book uh, as well, <laughs> which I enjoyed. But it's sort of, it's, you're right in saying that it's not quite within the like traditional Scottish crime canon as well because the characters and the police officers aren't your typical clean-cut figures. And while, you know, you've changed genres quite a lot throughout your career, but it does have all your usual ingredients for your typical, you know, gritty storyline, you know, themes of addiction, you've got Scots language, gallows humour, and it's also very political as well. And I I wanted to talk to you about that because it's one of the main things in this new book as well as the trans storyline. And I wanted to know what led you to that and your kind of themes about identity and personhood in the new one what drew you to it
2: you know the way the world is changing it's always been a thing about that i've had about you know the, the books to me everything i write is about this change from a world that we know into a world that we don't know you know we're moving out of capitalism we're moving out of paid work into a world where you know out of industrial an industrial world. Um, into all these markers that kind of defined us, like, you know, the division of labour and um, the division of, of sexes and the, the, the sort of, all that kind of stuff really made us sort of, uh, that, that they, they were our sort of ways of um, we identified ourselves as kind of workers working for a wage and or we identified ourselves as members of a a family a, or a community that, you know, the communities are all being kind of raised to the ground and pulled apart You know, under the sort of power of global capital. So we don't have these markers anymore and we're kind of cast adrift and it's like, um, I mean, Trainspotting is always about what are we if, we do, if we're not working, if we're not paying? Mm-hmm. what's the future for humanity, how do we define ourselves, you know? And I think that the, the identity thing about who we are, that big existential question, if you look at the the, in, in the and tra- the, the whole trans thing is a way of people addressing that. It's a way of looking at what, what is our humanity, who are we as human beings, how do we best express that, how do we become the best versions of ourselves. If you look at all the confusion that's, that's around in the world, trans people are not different from non-trans people. They may be looking at more radical solutions to this issue, but um, they're all. Everybody is looking at you know this kind of thing about well. Who am I now? What am I? Who am I? How do I fit into this world? What is this world that's changing all around me? But I didn't want to make any demarcation, really, between the trans and non-trans characters in terms of how they were experiencing the world and how they were experiencing the, the confusion and upheaval in the world and how they were trying to sort of define their place in the world. I think everybody's sort of, to a greater or lesser extent, all these certainties of of who we are have gone in a lot of ways. So I I wanted to to dive right into that rather than just mess around with it on the the periphery.
0: The book opens with a, a statement about the differentiation between an adversary and an enemy. And you say, in our modern age, we're losing the distinction between the two. And I was wondering, was that also related to the kind of because the kind of culture wars, as people put it, run through the book, but actually they're not actually central to the plot. And in some points, people use it as a distraction to talk about identity and what's going on with the thing differently. And I wondered why you chose to begin the book that way.
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's like, you know, we we live in that social media era where everything is binary mm-hmm. and we're, in, we're divided into these tribes. And you, that is so interesting that the way that um, it actually shows how much we've been lied to for 40 years and abused by the mainstream media because we've carried on the same kind of abusive other otherworldly traits in social media that we have. The, the, you know, all these tropes have been taken from the mainstream media to an extent. Our behavior is very much from the mainstream media, from the tabloids, from the ranting, from the demonization, particularly. I mean, you look at just the other week there, you've got like kind of. Like Joanne Harris and jo- and running, yeah yeah and you know and you know these two women are seen as these kind of vilified people on the opposite sides of this debate you know and it's like um, and they're probably not they're probably you know it's like if you talk to either of them you'll find that you know that um, they're both kind of reasonable and sort of moderate and kind of um, sensible in their views and all that and they probably would kind of share a similar kind of sort of political kind of outlook you know. And But the way that they've just been kind of made into these kind of totem poles by people who, who really need to belong and need to vent and need to sort of, and because of that, need, need to be part of a tribe, basically. And, the, you know, the whole pylon of social media, it's, it's, it's really it's such a strange world mm-hmm. to, to live in. And it's not a world that leads to kind of nuanced debate and around all the issues that are affecting us now we do need to apply some intelligence. We can't just kind of batter at things with blind prejudice.
0: Interesting. I'm thinking about something recently, Anthony Horowitz, he was sort of talking about this recently, and he said that he thought that writers and actually just creative people in general, he said that they're following the cultural agenda rather than setting it in order to maintain sales as well, especially with writing. And, I mean, you don't tend to shirk away from political commentary. Anyone can just look at your Twitter feed and see that, but... Do you think that is something that's happening, or do you think that's all a lot of hot air, or do you consciously act against the fact that you know your sales and your um like public profile could be changed based on your political opinions?
2: I mean, I understand kind of you know what you're saying to an extent, but I think that um the world's move is moving so fast now that um culture. Is moving so fast and it's kind of it's disintegrating so fast, it's changing so quickly. It's very difficult to have a Zeke guys thing. It's very difficult for any writer or novelist to say this is the new. If writers behave like they did kind of you know 15, kind of 20 years ago, they would be kind of co-opted onto some sort of um global think tank, you know, because now it's like uh, everybody's chasing everybody's everybody's chasing the economic, the financial and the subsequent cultural changes. Everybody's trying to make sense of it. And we're, nobody's... It's, it's very difficult to lead, you know. We've given up expecting our politicians to be leaders now. We, we just expect them to be kind of um, representatives of the 1%, to a greater or lesser extent, looking after their cronies and sort of sorting thing, and sorting things out for them and maybe giving us a bit of entertainment. You know, we expect our politicians to be clowns rather than sort of leaders now. Um, yeah. And, you know, sort of idiot kind of... Uh, kind Of um, entertainers and all that, and we part of the whole you know reality TV celebrity culture kind of foys is watching them fall and being crushed because you know they they only got maybe about a couple of years shelf life in them now sort of going on for you know dynasty type mm-hmm. you know sort of um, second terms and all that, and, you know, they're, they're there to be humiliated and shot down. Um, so uh, we don't expect anything other than that, but things are moving too fast. For anybody to have any kind of um, vision or leadership. Mm-hmm. As soon as you set something down, it's, it's gone, you know. So I think that, uh, to me, I think that, that is the, the reason that, that um, writers kind of seem to be following a kind of agenda. I mean, I think it's the, one of the, the more concerning things is the way that publishers are you know you're getting novels now that um, you see the, you see these kind of Instagram novels that are, you know like the massive type and big borders and you think there's fucking twenty thousand words in this. This is never a novel. This is like um, this is the kind of thing that I would write sort of mm-hmm. uh, kind of you know it would, it would be a, a, a rough set of notes before I would start to write a novel. You know there's not there's not the kind the, the discipline. There's not the sort of um, is not the imagination going on. other. Or, against that, you have the MFA-type novel, which is like the novel, you just feel you've read it a million times before, and it's like it's pristine, it's well-written, but it's just like um, you can do within the first passage, you know, first paragraph, you can tell who all the influences are. You can actually see the joy you think They're setting this up nicely now, but now they're going to start throwing stones at the protagonist and they'll resolve it by page such and such. It just seems... Incredibly formulaic and soulless, but again, that's not so much the fault of the writers. It's the way that everything's been professionalized, and it's the way that culture is assimilated now through through the media and through training, rather than through kind of lived experience. Basically, Mm
0: -hmm. do you think also it's you know it relates to art funding as well, and if 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 publishers are focused on profit margins rather than creativity, and you know genres have to be, everyone has to be put in quite set boxes in order for things to be able to be sold. You know, every Irish writer's got, compared to Sally Rooney and everything like that. You know, how, do you think we're due some kind of cultural renaissance? Like how are we going to ever get past that?
2: I think it's always been like that to an extent, but but, you know, but it's just become more so. It's become, you know, the the tools have become more effective and it's again a way of, it's it's, it's very conservative and it's a way of fleecing the public. It's very retail driven. Mm. you know, when I, when I started writing, for example, there was like fiction and non-fiction, basically. That was it. You know, you had two sections in a bookstore, and now you actually physically write into a genre hole. You know, you write, You know, you're you're actually writing into this this slot on a bookshelf, and it, it feels like a kind of exercise in marketing. And uh, but it has always been there. I remember when I you know it's like when I went to um, when I first went to Hollywood after the the success the, the success of the Transport Movie. Everybody wanted to put me on a picture deal to set to do scripts for studios. And, um, and I remember like um, one guy said to me, uh, you've got to give us an extra train spotting." And um, I thought when he meant give us an extra train spotting? it meant give us something really original and different, you know. Yeah. And I wrote this kind of script that was kind of sci-fi script. And I thought it was really good. And uh, I went, this is not the next train spotting. And what they meant was literally give us train spotting too. Give us yeah. some get the same actors back in straight away and have us sort of, you know, they can have different adventures, you know, and on drugs or not on drugs or on something, you know. And I thought, fucking hell, man. This is nothing would depress me more to do to, to do that, you know. At the time, I just couldn't be arsed with anything like that. And I think, well, that's interesting, but that was the first time i run against that phenomenon. You know, it's mm. that thing that um, we want more and more and more and more of the same until the public eventually get fed up, you know. And every time the technology changes you have the same spider-man remade you don't even you know there's a million spider-man comics Marvel produced you only see the first three basically just re, re kind of done and then packaged with other kind of cross fertilization with other kind of superheroes and all that so that's you know it's the way the it's the way the entertainment kind of industry machine works in publishing you see a bit more kind of Whitey, Toytoy, and highbrow you know—we're a bit, we're a bit better than that. We're kind of beyond all that kind of crassness. and now we're kind of very much um, <laughs> at the forefront of it, like you know. And you get the occasional maverick that kind of maybe breaks through and something and manages to convince some streaming platform to do something that's kind of interesting or whatever. Uh, but by and large, it's the same shit that's kind of knocked out with a little bit of a, a different spin on it. I mean, I've been working on a show just now. And the first thing the producer you know, its like a quite a, a big not not the crime one, but it's the other one that we working on and the first thing the producers said like uh, who are the main characters? how old are they what 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 sex are they where Where, where do they come from and all that so the, they're wanting to just basically they're casting it first in their own mind you know they're- you know they want this kind of pretty kind of box office friendly sort of people that are that tick boxes right across a kind of um an ethnic range, an age range, a social class, perceived social class range, a kind of, you know, you know, all this sort of stuff, which again is fair enough, but you feel that you can't, this is like a it's a social engineering kind of media construct, You're not really writing from any kind of um, place of any sort of cultural integrity.
0: It's interesting that you say that because to turn it back on you. You do keep returning to train spotting, and you did eventually make train spotting two. <laughs> and I hear you're actually still in ongoing email exchanges with Danny Boyle about train spotting three. And you've made a musical that you've told me. Yes, than. yeah. That's, are you, are you it, just, doesn't, it doesn't
2: count as franchising if it's from me, though. No, kind of, um, no,
0: it's more artistic, of course. Of course. Oh. <laughs> but is it because you just enjoy returning back to the old characters, and you're quite attached to them, or or do you actually? begrudge the fact that you know you're making new art but you're always going to be connected with train spotting
2: yeah I mean I was horrible of, I resisted doing the musical for years and years and because uh, mm. Paul McIntyre was on it me for ages to do the musical and uh, he wanted to license the, the tracks from the film like you know and I thought well but I did succumb, I thought the only condition I would do it in is if I could write more in songs. I don't want to I don't want a license the songs because I wanted to, I wanted I hate all these musicals that they just bung in songs to kind of they're not really musicals, they're stage plays. You know. Mm-hmm. Evan Hansen is one. It's a great, great stage play, it's a brilliant play. But they just bunged in these crap songs to make it into a musical, which it never is. Like, you know. So mm-hmm. I wanted the songs to really say something about the themes, about the characters and about telling the story. Uh, so that was you know. So we, we wrote myself and Steve, my music partner, we wrote all these different songs for it, and um, they really like. Fortunately, they really liked it, them. So we've kind of worked out all these tunes, and um, we're quite sort of we're quite up for it now, you know, and we're, we're we're very happy with it. But it was that that thing. I thought, well, if I don't write this musical, I'm you know, I'm a pile of ashes in an urn on somebody's mantelpiece. Some other bastard from fucking was going to come along and, and say, "Let's you know, we're, we're, we're doing the transport musical." Fucking Andrew, the cryogenically frozen Andrew Lloyd Webber is going to come along and, and write the transport musical. So fuck that, you know. I'll I'll, I'll I'll take the loot myself. Thank you very much, if you please. There's also the, the challenge of it as well. You think to yourself, wouldn't it be great to do something as a musical that's actually darker than the book and the mm-hmm. film and the the uh, the stage play? You know. So, um, just um, you know, that's one of the uh, you know the the driving reasons as well. The challenge of doing something that's going to engage a lot of different people and pull a lot Mm. of people into this whole thing is quite is is, you know, and to to reboot it for a whole different time as well. You know, we've 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 written new characters into it as well. You know, so I think to do something that's the same doesn't have any kind of interest or challenge to me. I think you, you take something like that and you make it into something else. I think that's the thrill of
1: it to me. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963, I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p, yep, three months for 99p, with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before
0: well it's also it's great that you have the creative control as you say not letting someone else do it for you but i also wondered looking back on it and returning to it is there anything that you actually wouldn't do now or you change or you think won't resonate with new audiences
2: yeah i mean i think it's like you know you you see what you, you you basically want to when you're writing the most important thing you can do is amuse yourself. Like you know, if you're not having a good time and enjoying it, nobody else is going to enjoy it. You know, so I think that um, if you if you look at you know that there's a lot of the you know like the the old key transporting scenes if you like you know that yeah. they, they kind of people want to see them and they walk and as a familiarity, but there's other ones around there you can think well let's do something more interesting than happened previously. You know, let's try and let's try and beat that. You know, make it so. Make these characters that we know much more often now. We know we know them better. Let's kind of see different ways they can pull on their swords and all that sort of stuff. You know. So I mean, you're
0: right, and that it's become iconic. I noticed um, that story about someone finding a, a a toilet in Brazil and saying it was um, exactly like the one in spotting. And it, it must be fun to have made cultural shorthand that everyone can enjoy but it also means that you've gone from the kind of enfant terrible of you know fiction and, and you know doing crazy stuff to being this like celebrated and quite acceptable part of scottish culture and does that ever annoy you or do you kind of yeah
2: hate no, fuck it, i hate this kind of kind of um sort of Almost like this national treasure type shit. Yeah. You know, I try to kind of say, look, I'm still a fucking bad bastard. But I <laughs> like, fuck you know, off. But nobody takes it seriously. They just laugh at me. I'm
0: still a raver. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it's one of the things that's, I've just got, I've got a novella coming out next year that uh, I've done with John King and Alan Warner as part of For Seal Club. Uh, and because it's like, um, John's publishing it through his London Books um, imprint. as an independent, small, independent. I've kind of taken the opportunity to go really fucking nuts on it and kind of go go do something really twisted and mad and dark with um, all these kind of fucked up young kids during COVID. Basically, like you know. Yeah. So I think it's a So it's been. It's kind of. Um, I still think I'm going to get this kind of reaction. The the you know, um, the reaction I always strive for. People we'll going. Oh, he's gone too far this time, like yeah. So so I, I i still kind of strive for that kind of reaction as well.
0: Yeah, I see that. And I wanted to talk to you because going back to the new book as well, you mean you and actually otherwise, especially one, especially in filth, you're you're clearly inspired by Alistair Gray with the kind of typography and filth and the experimentations. But I wondered, do you ever try and temper things being too excessive, or you know, being too reactionary, or how do you do it in a way that you don't feel like you're writing something that's gratuitous and it actually adds to the plot as well, or or do you just actually enjoy writing something that's provocative?
2: I think you have to. It has to come from character. You mm-hmm. know, that's always my, my kind of standard measurement. If you just write something for the sake of shocking and you you, you don't, you know, it's like, um, I mean, that's you know, if you if you think about. Um, James Bond, you know, you know, he has, you know, you have all these kind of James Bond characters, like you know, the, he's got a first in Oriental languages at Cambridge, but he's also an expert in jujitsu and karate, and he's tough on the streets, and he kind of, uh, and he's hard drinking as well, and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's also a great womanizer, you know, and and uh, and he thinks this is fucking nonsense, like you know, <laughs> it's sort of, kind of, it's a kind of white boys kind of wish performance kind of thing, you know. Um, and you have to kind of, you know, you don't have um. You can't have a kind of an accountant, kind of happily married, kind of accountant who suddenly goes out and decimates everybody in the streets in a kind of kung fu war. Basically, Mm -hmm. you have to really sort of um, you have to have the behaviour have to match the character. I like to make the characters extreme. I like to make them having a really bad day. Basically, I like to get two people having a bad day in different ways and stick them in the same room, and that's where you get the drama. You don't really get drama. You don't get drama in fiction when things are going right and everybody's making the right decisions. You get drama where everybody's fucked up because they're not doing the right things. You know they're, they're in a bat you know, that's like um, somebody's come home and found their partner having sex with their best friend. And um, in that position, what, what you do, you, know, you don't really... You, know, you make the wrong decision. You, know, you either kind of um, set about them with a baseball bat and end up in prison for the rest of your life or you go to the pub and you, you know destroy yourself with alcohol and um you uh, you take you take loads of drugs and you go out and you get into all sorts of mad adventures and sort of you make life worse for yourself by the decisions you make. You know, you mm-hmm. don't do that when you just go home and um you're deciding what to watch on TV. You know what I mean? There's nothing you know, it's like there is no there is no drama there. There is nothing. You know? So I like to amp up the drama, I like to put people who are maybe a bit kind of um who well, maybe haven't quite uncompromising ways of dealing with things anyway, but put them in the position so that the drama's kind of amped up. Um, mm-hmm. I really enjoy kind of, of, of doing that. And it's, it's, I feel it's like um, how you get over the, that is that you always have to show them kind of somehow, you have to show the consequences of everything they do for them and for other people around them. So nobody gets a free pass. So if anybody does something beyond the pale, they pay the consequences for that, and you show them paying the consequences. You show them, you show the anguish and the suffering and the tears that come from that kind of behaviour, both for them personally and for the people around them, which kind of you know sort of impacts further their kind of pain as well. You know, so it's like you you can't you know, and but the the other thing you have to do, the second thing I think is the writer. You always have to have them, even if they're stumbling around in the darkness. You've always got to be groping for that light switch. You know, you've got to mm-hmm. an audience will stay with somebody no matter how dark they are if they're kind of trying to be good, if they've got some sort of idea that um, if, they, you know, if they're trying to, to find some way, some kind of consciousness, some kind of, um, some kind of epiphany, or they're trying to find some uh, exit or they've got some kind of plan to get themselves out of the mess that they're in. Even if it's robbing a bank or something like that, or people want to see people that are fucked up try to get better.
0: Yeah, interesting, because, you know, you you write a lot about people with a lot of trauma or self-destructive habits as well. But something which you like Lennox, for example, as your protagonist, one thing he isn't is apathetic. But then a lot of the people that surround him are. He's very engaged in justice. And a lot of what's going on in your books is about corruption and people letting people get away with things and so you've got this protagonist that's really searching for it but I also noticed in the book there's a lot of corruption that mirrors what's happened in the past few years and I kind of wondered was any of it uncanny predictions or is it all inspired by things for example there's a bit all about um, for people who haven't read it yet there's a, a Tory MP who's trying to give a former colleague uh, contract with the NHS for his pharmaceutical product in the hope of getting promoted to health secretary. Um, and I wondered if any of these are, is that you just?
2: Well, you don't have to look, have to look too far for corruption, you don't have to <laughs> yeah. look too far for kind of abuse, but another kind of, you know, mm. something you can. And it's, you know, any, anything that, that a writer can write and imagine is always is, is happening. This is back to the point that was made earlier, you know, it's probably happening somewhere. You know, uh, and um, it's, you know, we're no longer, I don't think, you know, I think, I think that circumstances and technology and all that are leading us into a place and we're no longer in charge of that. You know, we're no longer, we're not, we're no longer the, we are catching up with culture, as has been said, but I think it's for these reasons that, you know, the, the technology and the, the politics and all that and the, the finances are just moving so quickly away from, you know, from how we've understood things to operate.
0: But do you think that people still have the capacity to be shocked and outraged by incompetence and corruption or, or like disgusting things or, or anything? Or do you think that, you know, we're, we've been so overexposed that we are either apathetic or actually just it, it's all...
2: I think we realise that the whole thing is kind of uh, is unsustainable and it is crashing mm. around us. Um, and I think most people are kind of, um, I think most people are in, a, in a way, I, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I think most people are kind of closet anarchists, but they don't really think that um, we can get involved in a revolution that involves us designing a new world. I think you know, mm. people are thinking, well, let's just let this mess fall apart and then we'll sort it out and then we'll deal with it in some ways. Eh?
0: Well, I also, um, I read an interview where you said that you're actually quite a jolly person, but you find that lots of stuff just um Goes uh, out on the page. Uh, is that still true?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of strange because uh, I feel I always feel quite upbeat and quite positive, and you know, I'm, I'm known. I think I'm I think I'm probably known as quite a sort of um, it's quite a happy-go-lucky kind of jovial character around family and friends and all that. And mm. then I always get a bit of a shock myself when I look and I see what I've written. You know, I think fuck yeah if I don't get that feeling I'm quite worried you know it's like if I don't get that fear you know like my my old mum she's 93 now and um I've always got to have this thing fuck my mum's going to read this like you know so I keep telling you've got to keep you've got to keep living because if I lose that kind of fear of your disapproval you know it's going to kind of send me into a, a, a bad place basically
0: well it's funny you say you're happy-go-lucky because amongst all the very dark themes and some quite graphic scenes in the book as well there's always a lot of comedy as well as social commentary and so does that all come very naturally
2: well i think it's like um, i mean part of it is you know is natural because it's like there's a very in scotland there's just a very kind of you know traditional black humor and cultural black, mm. black humour. people kind of um people laugh at the most kind of Darkest and horrendous things, but I think it's like you know the laughter is born. A lot of the best laughter is born in darkness. And I think as a result of that, um, the contrived element of it for me is that uh, if you're writing something that's very tense and you're asking people to to stick with kind of quite unbearable material, you have to have the respite of a of a laugh now and then because laughter isn't so much you know, it's not always about just finding something funny as a mechanism for reducing tension. So if you give people the chance to to laugh at something, then they'll um they'll they'll kind of go with it and they'll they'll sort of they'll take a little time out and you know turn the page and go, ah great. I'm relaxed now now. I can just sit back and I'll just look and go into this. And it's not so threatening the thing they've been reading about.
0: But I also know that um while you're famous for your kind of very many lives, from wild youth to working as a councilman and everything, uh, you also spent quite a large portion of the 90s winding up journalists by telling them fictionalised versions of your own life experiences, which I quite enjoyed. But I wondered, is that an intentional mystery about yourself or was that all just for a laugh? For a
2: well, laugh, and also I think as a famous, i quite boring. Like right? You know, I mean, I've kind of, you know, it's funny because there's been, there's two documentaries that have been made about me now. I think kind of one is much more than enough you know but mm. uh, there's two and one of them's been following me around for a year and it's been quite liberating for me in a lot of ways because um I've been thinking I've been, going, I've been following me around to all these different places that I kind of just go from from work and to write and to meet people and to hook out a couple of friends and it's like you know and it's the, the interesting thing about it is that um I've been thinking like um Fuck me! I'm more interested than I thought I was. I'm actually doing quite cool things and all that. But because you you go around in your own head, you don't really think of yourself as being interesting. You kind of think that, you know, you look at somebody, say that person there, yeah, they they've got an interesting life. They do this, they do that. That's quite interesting. And you don't really put yourself in that kind of place. But when you look at it abstracted, you think, yeah, I've got quite. I, I do actually have quite an interesting life, you know. But uh, you also think like kind of. Um, I'm coming across as a bit of a fucking arsehole in this documentary. You can see it in the rushes and you think, God, they've got to let me into the edit and all that. And then you think, well, no, no, because maybe I am a bit of an arsehole. And I probably am. I think everybody is to an extent. I think I am. So just, you know, go with it. You know, enjoy it. Embrace it.
0: You are right that you've got loads going on. We're um, talking just beforehand because you've got your own record label and I know that you're still DJing and everything. And I was thinking about your interest in music when i was reading the book as well because you write a lot in vernacular which i assumed was you're also interested in rhythm and music and how much do you think about that when you're writing is it are you just very musicals always with you
2: well i think you know i've got i've always got my my decks and my kind of um my keyboard is kind of always always next to my computer there like huh? and you know I'm, all, I'm usually sort of um I can, I'm usually working on stuff simultaneously. I'm kind of work, not, get, getting ideas for music and songs together. And then I think, well, this is an interesting... This, the mood that this is putting me in is, mm. is inspiring me to write something, you know. And then I'll write something, I'll write a... or find a character or a theme or, or a scene. And then I think, well, this is kind of quite interesting. And then start messing around with the keyboards, again get a kind of moody feel to it, you know. And that's it, you know, I always thought that... Um, with acetone, so I was kind of going out and I was kind of raving and coming back, and my head was just pounding with all this, you know, not <laughs> with the drugs I suppose as well, but also with the um with the dan you know with the, the kind of effects and the you know the beat was just smashing away and still throbbing and my whole body's just kind of throbbing with that beat, and I thought well I want to get that pulse that constant movement in the boot you know, and the vernacular was a way of doing that you know that performative kind of um sort of speech was very much like the 4-4 beat for me. And um, all the stuff in the big clubs when they started coming out, the, the light shows and stuff, you know, and the, the video installations and all that. And these were like the effects on top of the beat for me in a lot of ways, you know. So that's why the, the typography and experiments came from as well, to make it yeah. look. So it was kind of like um, messing around with all that stuff. And it was it's all driven by music, basically.
0: Is it also a point of pride, though, writing in Scots at all?
2: No, really. <laughs> it isn't really. I mean, it's like, I've never really, um, it just felt the best way to do it. It felt the most, you know, the characters came to me in that way, so it seemed pretentious not to. I've never into you know, into the same political kind of, I suppose Jim Kelvin would be the sort of best example, of, you know, we've yeah. seen this is a an act of, Claiming our culture and claiming our, you know. To me, I always just felt that we had it, you know, we can just, people should just do it if they fancy doing it, like, you know. And um, it was, uh, to me, it just seemed to be the best way to tell the story, the kind of way that the characters, the way I wanted to tell the story of these characters, it seemed to be the best way. Um, mm-hmm. If I was, you know, if I was getting somebody to tell my story or, you know, the, you know, the story of people around, my friends and family and all that, I wouldn't have them speaking in a kind of RP. Basically. it would seem a bit redu- ridiculous to do that you know yeah so why should it be like that in, in print place
0: it's interesting that you brought up Jim kellen though because I know you know obviously you won the um booker prize and at the time that was such a big deal and a kind of point of contention um but do you think now that that's not really a, a, an issue in the literary world anymore
2: I think it is in a way I think because mm. um, you know I think that if you look at um if you look at what happens it's like the with the Booker prize is is very much um a way for people to become huge writers huge established kind of sort of writers feted by the whole festival circuit and the literary establishment and writing for the posh papers and articles in new yorker and all that kind of stuff but if you look at kind of um, working class british writers that uh, have you know sort of from you know from traditional working class backgrounds i can think of like Jim Kelman and Graham Swift, and, you know, it's like the, the the Booker Prize didn't actually seem to do these guys much good, you know, mm. if you had a, uh, a kind of colonial background, it was more exciting to the, to, you know, to the, the, the liberal guilt of the kind of white British bourgeoisie, but not really, not really kind of traditional proles, they didn't seem to kind of cut it in the, in the mix, basically.
0: Are you quite glad then that train spotting didn't actually get listed in the end then?
2: I'm delighted. I think it would have been quite a, it would have been a sort of um, kind of co-opting kind of thing for me. I, I feel, I always feel that I'm better, and I've always been the the kind of the bad boy at the back of the class, not the super bastard at the front of the class. Like I just feel more comfortable in that position. Like, yeah,
0: yeah, and I. I it's funny you call yourself the bad boy at the back of the class because i heard you described once as the bard of big night outs as well, which is sort of oh, you like that. I quite liked it as well I was like that's that's the nice one but it's um you know fame enables you to be able to experiment and get published and try new things as well but obviously it, it eventually is always going to separate you from where you you came from and the people that you're writing about at the beginning or, or do you think personally that's never going to be an issue for you and you're always going to be connected to your roots and to working class culture and to everything
2: I think no. I mean, I don't think I'm. I, mean, I think mm. that you know, it's like you, 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 you do change. You you move around. Um, I think that a lot of people, not just myself, not just writers and artists and all that, we are in the spotlight. But I think that um, carpenters, um, sort of plumbers, and so sort of, a lot of my mates who've sort of. Um, Who've done well and all that, you know, they, you can see that they've moved into a sort of, um, into a different kind of social milieu to some to an extent, you know, even though they, they, they hold on to the kind of roots and they hold on to, to who they are, the essence of who you because the essence of who you are is always formed in your childhood, teens, and early adulthood. You know, and mm. that, you know that determines what kind of writer you are, what kind of person you are, and all that sort of stuff. And um, and I've never tried too hard to move away from from that. It's never really been an issue for me. But um, I think that you do you do have different opportunities, and you you do meet different people, you do get into different scenarios, and they affect you in different ways. And it's pointless kind of trying to pretend. Th- that's not the case you know you, and you you, you really have to go where the music takes you basically and you can't um, and I love transformation I love changing I love kind of doing different things I love sort of um, I love, you know you, you don't want to you don't want to look the same and dress the same and act the same and live in the same place and travel at the same places and go to the same pubs some people love doing that I can't I've just got to mix it up I've always been like that since I was a kid I've always wanted mm-hmm. to go to different places and see different things
0: I'm going to come on to audience questions in a minute, but just continuing on from that, I'd like to speak to you about what you're working on at the moment. Cause I can hear lots of rumours about all the cool stuff you're doing. I mean, someone's um, someone read somewhere that you're doing a radio novel with Brett Easton Ellis, you know, is that all still happening?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm out there next week, actually. And the week after next, um, uh, to LA and we'll spend a bit of time working on it. And, um, we're kind of winging it, really. We've we, we've got we, we have a, a very basic idea which we've pitched and which mm-hmm. uh, we've signed up to do. You know, so we've been paid money now to develop it. So we we'll have to <laughs> we we'll have to get on with it. Uh, and um, it's you know it's it's interesting. It's an interesting thing because we're talking about doing this. We have we've had this idea and we're talking about doing it as a TV show. And um, Brett has said like. This decided, you know, well, why not do some radio? Because he got into this podcast thing was kind of really become popular. He really, He's really had a good experience with doing radio and he's got some kind of knowledge about it now. I've got absolutely none, basically. So I thought, yeah, do this as a, a radio play, as an audio book, but cast with kind of top actors. And kind of, you know, being sort of just yeah, a, a, a kind of typical blagging Scot, I thought, this is great, but if we get paid for this, as, as a radio show we can maybe sell it on as a TV show later on you <laughs> so um, so that was the sort of you know that that was the, the, the rationale for doing this but we've, we've kind of wanted to work together for a while and this seemed to be the, the right vehicle that would do it and it would give us a bit of I think a radio, a radio kind of series of radio plays it gives you a bit of freedom you know, you don't. You don't have to sort of. You you, you avoid that trap of like, um, who are we going to cast in this and have this? You know, this we're going to cast all these kind of pretty boys and pretty girls to do all this stuff, and you know, and, and we're going to you know we're going to cast these great crusty old experienced actors to do. So, but I mean, we we, we can just get good talent. We can also don't have to. You don't have to envision them kind of sort of kind of doing things. You just have the... You can get into the the psychology of the characters and the drama of the characters. So that seemed to be a a very good starting point for us with Mm -hmm. this.
0: You enjoy collaborating with people because I mean, you are saying that you didn't want anyone else to be able to make the musical so made it sound like you kind of enjoy a level of creative control. But then also, you've allowed people to put on um, Trainspotting, a porno, at Edinburgh Fringe, and you've been very supportive of all of that. So, are you quite happy sometimes to just let? Yeah, take
2: yeah. Get, get the fuck away from me, basically. I'll get rid of it and see what um, see what other people can do with it. You know, mm-hmm. like if you get if you get the right people collaboration is fabulous because it's like you know you don't the thing is already there it's not changing nobody's you know all this nonsense people talk about is it true to the book because it you know, it's like mm-hmm. i don't need it to be true to the book the book's true to itself the book's there you know that if, if people want to read you know remix something and make it into something more interesting or different or take it off in a different direction that's brilliant because i don't want to see the same thing i want to see things that are, you know, i want to see Change, and I want to see things that are different and kind of, you know, in a more contemporary, or pushing the envelope out in a way that I didn't think that could, would be done. Mm-hmm. We've got Jenny Fagan doing uh, writing the Blade artist, which mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I think that would be fabulously, like, you know, because it's just mm-hmm. you know, if you got you got you've already got Robert Carlyle's going to reprise Begbie, and you've got Mar Brooke and you know, all that. If you throw Jenny Fagan in the mix as well, you've got something much more interesting. Again, basically, mm-hmm. you know.
0: So, so you're happy um, with people taking it on afterwards, but when you're writing a novel, are you fairly open to edits? I was also wondering if you used a sensitivity reader for this one in any way, and if you kind of... Yes, yeah, I mean,
2: really we, we have. We've we used a sensitivity reader on crime, which, I, you know, on the, sorry, The, the Long knives, which um, hmm. I was really, I didn't realise the, the publishers were doing that, and I was really kind of, fuck, I was really a kind of, I thought, you know, this is just some kind of censorship. Basically, I was really sort of against it. And uh, when I saw what they'd actually written, it was just so helpful. It was it was brilliant. It was so, it was such a considered and sort of um, and warm and helpful and interesting sort of and educational for me. And it made the book better, you know. So it was quite, it was a great thing to, to actually, because there's a lot of nonsense talked about these things as well. And I, you know, I probably would have been one of the persons that would be talking the nonsense. Um, and then you experience it; it's completely different from what people imagine it to be. But that's the thing, because we had somebody who was just really brilliant and knew what they were doing, mm. and,
0: and someone who was sort of productive and informative.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and was when did it in a kind of spirit that they want the thing to be better, basically. Mm. You know, not you know they weren't there just to trash. You know, they were to trash it at all. They were there to, to make it better, to make it not just um, not just better for. Uh, trans people to make them feel more affirmed. It wasn't a question about making people feel more comfortable. It was it was looking at that kind of authenticity and the, you know the, the making the the characters as psychologically believable and as as authentic as possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
2: that's what you, what you strive to do as a writer. And well and on the TV show there's a, as a, there's been a sensitivity reader as well. And again, that's been a a, a really positive experience for us so far. You know so you know they've gone through the scripts and you know everything is i think the scripts actually improved as a result of the book as a result of the sensitivity reader in the book as well
0: you used the word you said that you're worried that it was going to be sort of censorship at the beginning and uh, i know you said before that you kind of aim for people to be like oh god he's really he's really gone too far this time but have you ever been told like that it's actually too far or it's not adding to the plot or have you ever been reined in yeah, all the time on
2: TV, because you can't, you just can't get away with, with things mm-hmm. in TV that you can get away with in a book, you know? I mean, I can go, I can write anything in a book almost, like, you know? But temperatures, um, that's the, the brilliant thing about books, it's fucking, you can still get away with murder, basically. In the TV, you know, you can't, you've got, you know, it's like, um, I'll just get this kind of sex scene thing in the, the TV, and they just, you know, they can't, you can't, you know, and it's also the, the different medium, you know, you kind of, um what what you're you're doing in a book is you're you're working with the reader to work to create a film. The reader's making a film in their head using your book as a, as the rough material, you know. Whereas like if you're seeing something that's done by a, a writer and a director and actors and all that, you're seeing their version of it. You that's pushed into you. There's no that you've no real sort of. Um, Interaction or very limited interaction with that with that vision, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why people always prefer books. To you know, you know, they all prefer the version of the book um, because it's their version, basically. So I think you know, there's certain things that you just kind of get away with, you know. And it's like I remember, like um, there was when I I was looking at I did a rough screenplay for the 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 bedroom secrets of the master chefs, and I think there's a there's a lesbian scene that goes on for about four pages or something, a lesbian love scene that goes on for about four pages, which I was typing away kind of. Um, and then when I kind of thought, I can't, when it came to adapting it, the screen, I thought, I can't ask actors to do that because this is yeah. kind of real people. So I just put, um, they made love and then I let the director do all that. Like he, can, <laughs> he or she can work all that out. Like, you know?
0: that seems wise as well. Um, well, I want to come on to some of the audience questions as well so people keep sending them in. Uh, we've already had some funny ones, which is great to start with, which is, someone says, what's the most outrageous thing you've done in the past month?
2: The most outrageous thing I've done easily, I got pissed. I went out with my mate of mine and we got, he got really emotional. He's been having a rough time and all that. And mm-hmm. I, got, I got drunk with him and I'm not used to drinking. And I fell over and I split my head open. And I got knocked myself unconscious, and I got taken to the uh, royal infirmary and um, my wife got called, and shes he's taken been taken away in an ambulance and she got into the ambulance with me and um, we got you know and I passed out, and I woke up um still drunk, kind of singing David Bowie songs with blood you know, brushing from my head, and that's an emergency um and you know you know I'm about thirty years older than everybody else in the fucking place, like you know. And um, I've had kind a of, concussion since you know, it's been working itself throughout the system now, slowly. Uh, so that probably is the most outrageous thing I've done in a while. Um, and that was about a month ago.
0: I enjoy the fact that you're singing David Bowie songs in the back of an ambulance. That is funny.
2: Yeah, and, um, on, the, and on the gurney in the, the hospital waiting corridor. The back of the, fuck's sake. I'm, su- I'm sure everyone so, loved you, every you on the way. My man is a lot of... You know, they might just to get rid of me, they might treat me first and get me out of there. <laughs> they, were, they were really lovely. I was just, I was outra- it was terrible. It was outrageous.
0: Do you... Um, OK, someone's asked a question, which I don't think you're going to like, which is, they've just said sunak or truss.
2: Oh, it's like... Um, I don't know, it's that thing It's like um, kind of cancer or an aneurysm or something like that. What, what is the, the sort of... Um, yeah, I mean, it's like... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it will be, it will be trust. I mean, you know, you knew as soon as it was, they're not going to have anybody brown-skinned as leader of the Conservative Party because it automatically just smashes the Brexit coalition, uh, which is kind of fragile now anyway. But um, it's, uh, I think that um, Sunat never had a chance from the start. Uh, and it's inevitable that it will be trust. And it's like, the interesting thing is that if there's one person in the country it's got the potential to be even more stupid, um, ridiculous, venal, and corrupt and incompetent than Johnson. Trust is about the one person who could possibly pull it off. So we just seem to keep diving deeper and deeper and deeper into the bottom of the barrel.
0: Mm, and there's a lot about that in the book as well, about just people you keep going for the same people all the time as well so there's a lot of um
2: we're in a we're in an abusive relationship the british public's an in 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 incredibly abusive relationship with its own establishment it has been for years and years and years and it's actually getting worse and more
0: pathetic mm. god that's a good headline um, <laughs> um, we've got a slightly different question now which is going back to what we were saying earlier about you know our Perhaps becoming more sanitised and more profit-driven. Are there any young writers or young creatives that you're reading and really enjoying, and you think are going to be important? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think like obviously like Jenny Fagan. Uh, I mean, I yeah. think she's brilliant, and I've had her. You know, I've kind of um, basically signed her up to work on the the arts I said, "You've got to, you've got to do this, like because because um, you're brilliant. And it'll be great, basically." Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Gabriel Cruz, a you know, a kind of London writer. I think he's just brilliant. He's going to be one of the, the, the biggest and best writers uh that this you know, we've had here. Uh there's so many, this you know, there's there's a lot of great um new writers, kind of young writers coming through. The the, the big problem is that um the most interesting ones aren't really part of that kind of um the kind of corporate sausage machines kind of sort of stuff that we, we 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 get out and so i think we really we need to have a a space a kind of um a really bold underground interest and publisher that's kind of quite well financed that is just taken on taking on really interesting voices and not just kind of um Kind of daft Instagram writers, basically.
0: Mm.
2: That are, they're, they're believed that, you know, that they're hyped as being interesting and new and cutting edge. They're not at the fucking boring.
0: Do you think that might be ever be a project you'd take up?
2: No, I mean I can't I, I can't do everything. I've just been um I was there in mole stomping around the Muir House, but with, with the building a new um big arts hub down there and it's really interesting and fascinating and all that, yeah. And um, you know, I've just been asked to kind of get involved and help out right there, and I have to because it's my own. Old kind of manner and all that, you know. But I'm just spread so thin as it is now, you know, and I can't really be involved in everything. We've got the record label; we've just knocked out kind of six tracks already that have all done. You know, you know, they're all they're all doing really well. But it's just to keep an eye on everything and to keep involved in everything and to give it your best. You can't really sort of do it. Mm, yeah, I
0: suppose you can't can't have a record label and a publishing house and be right Maybe I can though. Maybe I can. Maybe I can. <laughs> so it was also something funny. They said, um, you know, you write a lot of quite gritty books and TV, but do you actually enjoy any lighter material? So does Urban Welsh have a guilty pleasure?
2: Yeah, I mean, karaoke is kind of my guilty pleasure. Cheesy karaoke. Um, and I like—I do like big kind of cheesy power ballads. I like to belt them out. And uh, I have a sort of... Um, my favorite, my, my, my karaoke sta- standards are like um, I, I do a kind of Shina Easton medley, I do Modern Girl 9 to 5, kind of, you know, Rackets Morning Train if you're in America. Um, and uh, for, uh, for your eyes only, the Bond theme, you know, so the trilogy of Shina Easton hits. And, uh, you know, I started doing that in America. So that's like, you know, but I, I do love a good kind of um sort of Chase's karaoke. And I love, I love good clean mainstream pop we all love 80s mm-hmm. pop and these big anthems and all that sort of stuff so so yeah i do you know i can kind of, sort of um i do have a lot of guilty pleasures i do kind of you know I, I i don't mind going high or low culturally like you know it doesn't sort of bother me if i enjoy it i enjoy it, it doesn't matter
0: Good. You should never be a snob. I think that's the right way to be. Um, That's actually all we've got time to talk about and quite a funny question to leave it on as well. But thank you so much for giving up your evening and talking to me. It's been a real pleasure. No worries,
2: Esme. It's been a pleasure. Thank
1: you. This episode of the podcast starred Irvin Welsh and was presented by Esme Bright. Esme produces this series with me and we have help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you love literature, you'll find more of it at howtoacademy.com. Coming up in the next few weeks, we're hosting John Irving, Kate Moss, William Boyd, Camilla Shamsie, and Will Self. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.